Aloha, and welcome to Sup FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. As we reach the end of season three, it's my very great pleasure to welcome someone who I've wanted on the show for a long time and who's made a huge difference to my paddle experience over the last few years. It's the author Tristan Gooley. If you haven't caught it already, me and Nick talked about Tristan back in the SUP FM book club episode, where we also covered some other reading that's really helped us to develop as paddlers and instructors. Tristan's books have been massive successes over the years internationally and have featured in the Sunday Times Top 10 and also the New York Times bestseller list. And it was really good of him to follow through on this interview, which we've been talking about for a while. And he's doing a load of publicity at the moment for his new book, The Secret World of Weather. I've always spent time in and around nature, but his books have really opened my eyes to things I'd never previously been aware of. And on dry land, his books like The Natural Navigator can help you to see simple patterns in nature that you can use practically and to help to deepen that really crucial fix of nature, which, as we know, is so important for our mental health. But in this interview, we talk about his book, How to Read Water, which, in my view, is a must have for anyone who spends time on the water. And it's a book which covers every water environment, inland and the ocean. And it gives you some great tips and practical knowledge to use wherever you are in the world and whether you're on the water or if you're just planning to get out. This interview is slightly shorter than usual because Tristan was in demand as he releases his new book. And we fly very quickly through a very small number of the subjects he covers in his book. And I attempt to talk Tristan through one of the lessons that I've used most often when I'm lining up a surf session, which is how to tell the wave height while standing on the beach. So this is the last episode of season three. And if you enjoyed the season, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us some love on social media and let us know what your favourite episode was and why. But in the meantime, here's a guest whose book, How to Read Water, is one I can't say enough about and which I highly, highly recommend. Here's Tristan Gooley. So Tristan, welcome to Sup FM. You've been really busy over the last 12 months. You've got a, a new book out soon, which we'll talk about later. For people who, who don't know about you and who haven't discovered your books, you're an expedition leader. You've uh, taken part and, and done some sort of pretty gritty challenges, including crossing the Atlantic a couple of times, both times solo, I think, one by plane, one by sail. But you're most known for publishing a number of, of books on natural navigation. Now, how would you describe natural navigation and, and how did you first get into it? Um, natural navigation is the, the wonderful art of finding our way using nature. Uh, and that, that sort of that nutshell does, does sort of encapsulate the idea, but it doesn't actually do the subject justice because my, my um, experience with it uh, led me to, from a sort of very simple nuts and bolts, how do I find direction using sun, moon, stars, waves, wind, um, clouds, to, to a, quite a sort of seismic shift, which feels um, at times philosophical, at times practical, uh, at times, you know, a, a third space where 
absolutely everything outdoors is a sign and a clue. And that is, that is, uh, it was a very organic process. So, so natural navigation is the art of finding our way using nature, but that uh, is a sort of, it's an umbrella there. And underneath that sits this idea that for, for those of us who enjoy um, deduction, mysteries and puzzles, natural navigation is, is shorthand for, I want to understand what's going on out there. I want to find meaning in, in every little thing that, that uh, my senses feed to me. Mm-hmm. And it, it's funny because that's exactly the way that I tend to explain it to people. You're a bit like the nature equivalent of uh, Sherlock Holmes. You know, Sherlock Holmes interprets all these various clues that are out there that people just walk by and they don't necessarily notice. And it's something that's been particularly important you know during the times that, that we've been living through at the moment because we we're going deep into things rather than sort of jetting all over the world and it gives us an experience uh, where we're able to interpret and look at nature in a much more comprehensive way yes uh i i think that uh, the sherlock holmes analogy i think is is uh, an interesting one and it's interesting on a couple of levels. One of them is cultural. And I think my work is, is about uh, fundamental things, fundamental patterns in nature, but also uh, our fundamental psychology. We, uh, if we compare ourselves to the animal kingdom, we are slower with weaker senses, um, you know, weaker physically than, uh, you know, we generally on a, on a physical level will get out, out competed by most species in some way or another. But the one thing we do have over, over pretty much all other species, as far as we can tell so far, is an ability to, um, to, to solve mysteries uh, and deduce things. Um, so, but what, what's interesting culturally is that, is that we need to use a modern, I mean, in, in terms of nature, Sherlock Holmes is incredibly modern. Um, you know, in terms of literature, it's 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 getting on a tiny bit, but uh, but we use these these modern cultural analogies to understand something that is age old, and that's that's quite often the, the best way to do it. It's quite hard to to describe the way we think and feel as animals whose genes haven't changed for for tens of thousands of years potentially. That's you know that's almost too deep to go straight into. So I actually the, the Sherlock Holmes thing is is a, is a fun sort of pop cultural way of saying this is you know this is this is the kind of stuff that you, your brain is going to be doing if you get into natural navigation and I think everybody understands it straight away but to me it is still quite quite interesting that we're using modern um, uh, very modern uh, in that case quite sort of urban uh, examples to describe something that's uh, probably a hundred thousand years older or more and and not just rural but wild. Mm, absolutely. So uh, How to Read Water is the book, obviously, that we're going to focus on today. And as I mentioned, that was a New York Times bestseller. But I, th- I think there's just to sort of illustrate what we mean by uh, natural navigation. And I think it's important to point out also that to utilise your books, you don't have to necessarily be in the UK or living on the coast or in the countryside. You can be in the northern or southern hemisphere and you can even use these sorts of things in an urban setting. But before we get into talking about the water, there, there's a classic shore-based navigation tip that I know you've, you've spoken about quite a lot uh, and it's the thing that really started me off and got me dialed into what natural navigation is about and how simple those signs are that we tend to just walk past us so um, could you just explain how you can look at a tree and work out compass directions from it 
Yes, thanks. Yeah, I think the tree is such a it's a great way in. Um, uh, and and just just before I go into the, the the detail of the how to, it's 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 a really good example because the word tree everybody understands instantly and doesn't require identification. The second you're mentioning species names and things like that, I think more than half the people go, "This is this is for." I, I like to refer to tribes. I'm not talking about indigenous tribes. Sometimes I am, but generally I'm just talking about groups of people and how they identify and how they feel. So if you use a species name, you know. One large tribe of people go. That's that's for a different tribe. That's not for me. Whereas if you say tree, everyone goes, yeah, I'm, I'm still I'm still on the page. Sometimes literally. So in the case of a tree, what's great is the patterns apply to to the vast majority uh, of tree species. It's it's a fundamental thing. And trees, unlike uh, animals, can't move. So if it, if a tree isn't, um, I'll anthropomorphize it a bit. I'm doing it deliberately. I don't I don't. I don't believe a tree has a brain or a central nervous system, obviously, but in terms of conveying concepts and teaching things, it is quite a helpful um, device. So if a tree's not happy with its lot, it can't, like an animal, move, um, you know, 100 metres or 100 miles to, to improve its improve its situation. So the only thing it can do is, is respond uh, primarily with, with growth changes. Uh, and what we find is actually the result of the way the, the tree grows in response to light, water, wind and a few other variables uh, is 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 actually quite simple. At least a very simple patterns. The simplest of which is you get more tree on the southern side, um, but every single part of the tree and every single part of anything growing is responding. So what we end up doing is putting two quite simple bolts together. We get most of our light from the south because the sun is due south in the middle of the day in in the northern hemisphere, well north of the tropics. Trees are responding to that. It's very asymmetrical. They're not getting much light from the north. So their, their evolutionary response is, I want more of the light. It's my breakfast, lunch and dinner. I am going to grow more out in that direction. And what we then find is that there, there are more than, more than 20 of these, these types of responses. So that's the simplest one. But the shape of the branches, the way leaves grow, um, the colours all through a tree are, are also uh, reflecting these inputs and through that giving us clues to direction and many other things too. Absolutely. So... One of the things that I love about uh, your books is the sense of reconnecting with a lot of lost um, and ancient skills and knowledge, which people tend to get from obviously a lack of technology, but also a really deep immersion into their local area where there wasn't all the distractions of modern life. And you've spent a lot of time on expeditions with indigenous people to understand their traditions and also researching the Westerners who have also done the same thing. And in the book, How to Read Water, you talk about Pacific Islanders and their incredible navigation abilities. Now, Stand Up Paddle owes everything really to these Polynesian and Micronesian cultures, which really created this sport. So could you just tell us a little bit about some of their methods of navigating? Yes, uh, they've been such an inspiration to me. And it's a, it's a really, it's a it's a by and large a happy story the way the uh, the, the West um, learnt about these skills. Uh, so the the Pacific Islander Islanders um, grew up in their own isolated navigational culture. Now navigation, and in their case, na- natural navigation, they had they had no tools or any any description um, for for finding direction or working out where they were uh, was was essential. In a way that was, you know, different to to the Western experience. Um, most Western cultures, you know, sort of land based, and going to sea was part of, you know, a whole list of of um, uh, things that were optional. Um, 
Whereas in the Pacific, if you if you didn't go to sea, there was really no no life to speak of because the quite often the communities are too small to to survive in the, in the numbers they were on a single island. So that forced uh, a massive engagement with the sea. And when you combine that with the the um, lack of technology, it uh, they were they were shielded, which I don't know if that is the right word, but they were cut off from the sort of technological arms race which has been going on. So the Vikings and the Arabs were constantly at each other's throats for for a period. And when one culture invented something, it was probably only a matter of weeks, if not weeks, months, before a boat was overtaken by the other culture and that that technology transferred. But that didn't happen in the Pacific. So what we find is this wonderful cultural ecosystem where they they had no choice but to take these skills to the highest possible level. Uh, And the skills skills we're talking about here are are mainly patterns in in water behaviour. So, and it's a very... uh, on so many levels, it's been inspirational and formative for me. But but the one that's most relevant to 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 me and how I, I wrote this book was that when when um, the wind blows water, uh, as as all your listeners will know, um, we get ripples. If it blows for long enough, we get waves. And and if there's a massive amount of energy coming from the wind into the water, you know, a storm or very strong wind systems, then swell is formed. And swell, uh, as as you will be aware, is is it, it's, it's wave energy that's travelled beyond the point where it's created. Now, when that when those waves of any size, uh, but but swell is is the most pertinent in the Pacific, bump into an obstacle, certain patterns are formed, and and they are formed dependably. We're talking about laws of nature here. They're not. It's not a kind of subjective mood type thing. The wave doesn't hit hit an island and then sort of go. Oh, today I feel like sort of doing a, a star shaped pattern. It creates the same, it creates the same patterns every time. The simplest thing being there'll be some reflection, but then we t- then we move into areas that are a little bit more you know uh, interesting and, and perhaps complex where, where they bend round uh, refraction, uh, they overlap on the downwind side, and there's a there's a, a swell shadow where the waves don't get, and in, and that just creates five five patterns that are recognisable. Now, from the perspective of the Pacific Islanders, they're picking this up from uh, being very close to it, being on the surface of it, so they're they're quite often picking it up through motion. And there are, there are many sort of stories of the islanders lying on the decks of their um, outrigger canoes with their eyes shut to, um, to focus on that, that sense of motion and being able to work out where land is just from that change in rhythm. And I, I've been aware of that for, for decades, um, but uh, what the, the, the trigger for the book was actually um, there, was a, there was a moment when I saw these patterns in the wind was blowing across a pond uh, near where I lived in Sussex and it set up some ripples and the ripples bumped into a clump of lilies in the middle of this pond and I saw the same patterns um, and, and they were identical to the patterns that I'd seen in, in research that had been done in the Pacific and things like that and at that moment I realised that not only were these patterns dependable but they were universal uh, you know where where wind on any scale touches water on any scale you'll get waves and where those waves bump into something you will you will find these patterns and it, it, it genuinely doesn't matter if it's a you know three or four meters or, or three or three or four hundred miles you're you're, you're going to get you'll have to forgive my mixing metric and imperial that's <laughs> one of my one of my vices but but that that's that's the truth it's happening on all scales and that that for me was so exciting because I thought if this stuff, you know, resides in the Pacific, it is fascinating, um, doubly fascinating to the people out there, and in an academic sense, fascinating to us. But the moment I realised that actually we can pretty much see it in the bath, uh, that that's when I thought, wow, okay, what other patterns are, are true? What what other ones? What other ones? You know, can we carry with us all through the world and on all scales? 
Absolutely. And for stand-up paddleboarders, obviously it's a very basic type of, of water propulsion. And one of the features, particularly of those of us who paddle on the water and on the sea, that sort of motion and that feeling of being at one with the water is certainly something that that we would I- identify with the polynesians use other methods as well there's the wind compass i mean that again is a fascinating one um particularly identify with that one over the last sort of couple of weeks where we've had easterlies but just um just sort of bit identify a little bit about a wind compass and how how they work with those yes the the word compass in the context of Pacific navigators is sometimes misused because our, our understanding of a compass is something that gives you information, whereas the compass in, in that context is, is quite often um, referred to use to, to the use of, of understanding what's going on around you and working back from that. So um, a, a lot of natural navigation is to do with wind awareness. Um, it's, it's one of the first things I, I teach people and I refer to it in, in writing a lot is, is you're, you're tuning into the wind today and developing a relationship with the medium and long-term patterns wherever you are. And again, that happens over several scales. So in the UK, for example, we, we have uh, prevailing southwesterlies. Put another way, um, if you had to put a bet on what the wind will be doing in six months' time, bet on a southwesterly. You could well be wrong. It could be from the north. As you said, we've had easterlies, but it's just a, a percentage thing. Um, and in the, in the Pacific, uh, that's, that's again, like all of these skills, it's, it's taken to another level, awareness of, of, of seasonal winds and those relationships with the swell. So a classic um, uh, uh, sort of journey to an island might involve an awareness that um, the seasonal winds uh, were from one direction, but actually there's been a there's been a storm generating swell coming from another direction, and that's giving you, instead of it being confusing, it, it actually is giving you two layers, uh, and they reinforce each other. And and the, these these patterns are are just ripped through nature nature the whole way. So for example, when I was crossing Dartmoor quite a few years ago, I I, I knew where the wind was coming from from on the day i knew the prevailing wind direction was from the southwest uh, and i knew what the wind had been doing over previous days so i could actually see the grasses bent over over different periods of time and feel the wind on my face which is which is you know totally analogous to the the pacific method of knowing what the wind is doing on that day and actually having a history of what the wind has been doing in the swell that's moving the boat as well Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the the real sort of practical applications of some of the things that you cover, because your book covers so many different areas. You talk about water in all its forms, all the way from what I'd say the surprisingly fascinating world of puddles, which is a a phrase that I never thought in my life I would say, but but it is fascinating. But you cover puddles, lakes, rivers, obviously the coast, because in water terms, there's so much to cover there. Weather signs, star navigation, light on water. And so whatever area you paddle, there's something for you in this book. But just to start with rivers, there are a lot of features there. And one of them has a fantastic name the Talweg. Um, what is the Talweg and in terms of navigating a river why is it so significant? Uh, the Talweg is the the deepest point in any valley and that's particularly um, interesting in terms of water flow and it, it's true of a dry valley so you can you can have a Talweg uh, in, a, in a valley where no water is running or, or water might be seasonal so it's not it's not refer, referring to the water itself. It's referring to that that line of the, the deepest line that you could trace in a, in any valley. 
And then when water's flowing through it and we have a river, um, the tower becomes um, even more interesting because the water will flow fastest um, on or very close to the tower. Um, everybody will be familiar with the idea that water behaves differently as it gets as it gets shallower. The, the wave behaviour in, in coastal situations is, is is hugely changed. But in terms of river speed, is one of the one of the big differences. As it gets shallower, the, the friction is is greater and and the, the water moves more slowly at the edges. So what most people would do, and I, I use the game of poo sticks, which I've, I've given talks about this book in the UK, the US, and a, a few other places, and it's, it's a slightly sort of um, Anglo-centric sort of view of things. So if anyone's listening who's, who's in the UK, poo sticks is a, um, based on the, the, the Winnie the Pooh books. It's, it's a game where you throw sticks off a bridge on the upstream side, and whoever stick comes out first on the downstream side wins the game. And I use that to kind of illustrate the idea that most people, even if they spent very little time on or near the water, will probably have some idea that you're more likely to win the game if you drop your stick near the middle. But uh, I make the joke that actually you can you can um, you can win a bet and uh, and wipe the smile off an eight year old's face by knowing the towel work because every every natural river bends. No river can run for run straight for more than ten times its own width without human engineering. So what we find is where the where there's a bend, the towel work is naturally just because of you know natural forces. Is, is closer to the outside bend. So putting all those small pieces together, what we find is find the middle of the river uh, and then just move ever so, excuse me, ever so slightly towards the outside bend and the water will be moving slightly faster. And in the research for, for this book, I'm, I'm observing things, I'm, I'm noticing things and I'm then going away scratching my head and then I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And so when I'm spotting these sorts of things, I'm going like, wait a minute, it isn't fastest in the middle there. I'm not sort of thinking, right, okay, well, I need to, I need to spend 10 years staring at that river. I, I will go um, very happily and sort of, um, you know, bow down at, at, you know, coxes on rowing boats and people who have spent 10 years trying to work out where the water is fastest. And that's kind of the process of my work quite often is I notice something, it, it, it makes me curious. And then I, you know, I, I gratefully accept that somebody's probably spent 10 years more thinking about that individual sign than me. Uh, and I, I stand on their shoulders and, and, and borrow it for the book. Absolutely. And we harvest that information from your book. Um, just moving on to the the coast. So my first sailing experience, I was in a little race and, and I was amazed by the skipper's ability to be able to anticipate the arriving winds just before they arrived. Could you just tell us a little bit about what sort of visual signs they were looking out to uh, to help them with that? Yes, I, I think the sign you're, you're referring to there, there are a, a few that can help. But the main one is um, uh, the nickname is Cat's Paws. And uh, when, when wind is flowing over water, it's, it's not perfectly smooth. Uh, there's some turbulence there. And, and that means that the wind doesn't touch the water in a, in, a, in a uniform way. And there are places where the wind is touching the water more um, aggressively and places where it's sort of moving over smoothly and not really... Uh, disturbing the water and the places uh, and gusts of wind tend to be quite sort of rough and turbulent and they 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 it's almost like they scratch the water surface and that creates this effect that has has the, the lovely nickname of cat's paws and uh, I had a similar experience to you when I was learning and then occasionally like, you know, I get sort of reminded of it it's that if you're the smaller the sailboat you're in um the the, <laughs> the more you pay attention to these sorts of signs you know if you're in a, in a sort of 100 foot boat you, you generally get away with 
um, reacting to gusts. Whereas if you're if you're in something that's not that much longer than your your tool, you have to you have to preempt them. And so what we find is when there's a, a gust, uh, it scratches at the water, and visually all that is, is a change of colour. Um, typically, we're seeing quite a, a bright sort of surface because we're seeing mainly reflections of the sky, uh, and where that gets uh, roughed up a bit and scratched by these cat's paws, we, we see a darkening. But it will always be different because the effect is it's sort of slightly slightly breaking the mirror in that place or certainly giving you reflections of a different thing or breaking the reflection. So we don't actually have to work out what we're seeing. We just notice these patches of colour change. And once you're practised in doing it, it's um, it, 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 it. with most of these signs, there's a, there's a quite quite early tipping point where we, we start actively looking for them, going, can I actually spot that or is this for somebody else? And then we go, wait, I've spotted it. And then what happens is you, you do it a few times. And because our brain has evolved to spot patterns, excuse me, we are so good at spotting patterns that it's notorious the brain will find patterns where there are none. So actually the, 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 the problem's at the opposite end. But, but in terms of spotting science, it's great because that is one of the things our brain is brilliant at, at taking a, a, a bit of sensory information, ah, a colour change, I know what that means. You probably only have to see it half a dozen times before the meaning will leap to you. You go, that's a gust. So it starts with, is that a cat's paw? Oh, yeah, maybe that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think, oh, there's a gust of wind. Half a dozen times of that. And then your brain will just say, look, don't do all that hard work thinking. You know, when you see that colour change, you're about to get hit by a gust. And you may well not know the answer to this as you've written it rather than reading it, but all of your books are so packed full of useful information. The challenge is often at retaining it enough so that when you go out for your walk or, or out on the water, you, you actually notice these things. My tactic is to restrict myself to just concentrate on a very tight section of the book and then go out and look for those patterns because otherwise I just go from one interesting fact to the other. I don't know whether there's any best practice for properly integrating your knowledge into the real world. Uh, Well, thanks. It's it's a lovely compliment and I know exactly what you mean. And I, uh, the, the way I sort of suggest people do this, particularly if they're new to these things, is my job is almost like a sort of host of a, of a cocktail party and each of these signs is a character uh, and, and I will introduce you to, you know, several hundred of them. Uh, and, but I'm not expecting you to, to like them or want to form a relationship with all of them. So that, that's very much what happens with me personally. I mean, over the years, I've got to know all of them. I don't love all of them, but I, I find them all interesting. Uh, and, and, Again, it's a tribal thing, by which I mean some people just find the wind interesting and some people find rainbows interesting and some people find um, rivers more interesting than the coast, etc., etc. So so my job is I, I take you, to, to continue that metaphor analogy, I, I take you into the room and just say, these are the characters, these are the signs. Uh, you go out there and do what you're doing. That's, that's, you know, that's your thing. And what you'll spot some of these characters and you will hopefully form a bond with some of them. Um, might not be love at first sight. One or two of them it is. There's, there's one called the glitter path where we can tell how big the waves are because the, the reflection of the sun near sunrise or sunset broadens when the, when the waves get bigger. That's one people quite often fall in love with very quickly. But there are others that are a bit more technical, um, you know, a bit, bit like being introduced to a geek at a party. It's kind of like, you know, not everybody's cup of tea, but some, some, some people are going to love them, some people are going to, you know, let them be. And, and that's really, that's all I suggest is, is, you know, 
meet meet them all once and then you choose which ones you want to want to spend time with mm-hmm. so one of the things that's particularly interesting to stand up paddlers is conditions obviously closer to shore and there's a place near me which is uh, a place where lots of instagram pictures get taken it's called old harry rocks it's a uh, sort of stacks and so on out into the sea and it's the start of the jurassic coast of dorset which is an absolutely beautiful area but like a lot of these really spectacular areas that there are potential risks in that area particularly overfalls could you just explain a bit about overfalls and how they work and, and the role of the tide where it comes to, to connecting with them? Yes, um, I think in the book I, I describe uh, an experience I had sailing with a friend and I had a, um, a 32-foot sailing boat called uh, Contessa 32, which for, for non-sailors, the way I describe it is it's the Land Rover Defender of the sea. It, it can take on pretty much anything, but it's not it's not very comfortable. Um, uh, but but I, I went with my friend and we deliberately went through overfalls, which is a stupid thing to do. But so overfalls, um, most will be familiar, but it's, it's, it's when you've got um, uh, water flows horizontally over, over a very rough seabed, um, the rougher the seabed and the faster the water uh, and, and depth plays a part as well. If, you know, above a certain depth, you know, in the middle of the Atlantic, we don't, we don't suddenly feel the, 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 the trenches at the bottom. So, so if water is is shallow enough, I mean it can still be deep in terms of you know our experience. It could still be sort of ten meters or something like that, but it's it's shallow enough um, relative to the the the, the seabed, uh, and the water flows fast over that. You get you get a lot of um, turbulence at the surface, uh, and I think the analogy I use in the book is um, those, those times when you're kind of you're washing up and the taps flowing fast and it goes over the, the surface of a plate uh, and that's 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 you know all smooth and you can kind of predict exactly what the water's going to do but if you suddenly start washing up a grater it starts flying everywhere um, you get wet and you think I need to turn the tap down or whatever um, uh, but but really all all um, uh, fluids liquids and gases have these two modes they're either smooth or they're turbulent the, the scientists call it laminar flow or turbulent flow so overfalls are just where the water is moving quite quickly because of tides, um, typically round headlands where, where it accelerates. It's a little bit like a thumb over, over the end of the hose. So you've got fast water in terms of you know, the scheme of the ocean as a whole. It's quite shallow because you're near the coast. Um, going over, you know, it, can be, it can be underwater caves, there can be rocks. Uh, in, in the area you're talking about, the coast is, is constantly sort of falling into the sea. So historically, that's probably um, a large part of the reason there. There's a lot of sort of big chunks of debris that, that have fallen off cliffs and things like that. Um, and it's it just is uh, it um, if you're if you're if you're expecting it and it's part of the plan, it's it's a rough and exciting ride. It catches you off guard. It's dangerous and, and truly terrifying. I'm a, a stand-up paddle surfer, and one of my favourite and most useful tips that uh, I've got from your book is your method to tell the height of a wave from the beach. Would you like to just quickly talk us through through that method? Yes, um, I probably won't do it justice because I haven't I haven't sort of had to uh, I haven't had to describe it for a while, and it's a good example of the sort of thing where I've probably spent quite a while trying to trying to get it down. To, to something that made sense in the book, but it's it's it's. Um, are you talking about the horizon one? Yes. Yeah. 
Why, why don't you you tell me how you know? I mean, I because I, 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 it's more important the listeners are, are happy with it and it's clearly fresh fresh in your mind. So you, you, you tell me how you remember it and it'll be, I think it'll be better than the job I do. <laughs> it's one of the difficult things about podcasts where because of the medium, sometimes it's better to actually read it and, and actually look at it, particularly if it's a diagram. But let me give it a go. So um, basically, if you're standing on the beach and there are waves breaking ahead of you, you can you can assess the height of them by walking down the beach obviously beaches shelve and you can walk down the beach to a point where you can line up the horizon with the the top of the breaking wave now if you have reached that point without your feet getting wet then that's an indicator then that the waves are higher than you they're taller than you and to get a decent idea of what the actual height of the waves are you sort of take um, your height and then add on the sort of the clearance uh, between you know where your feet are and uh, where the water starts so so that would be um, how you would identify waves that are bigger than you now obviously if you've managed to to walk all the way down to the uh, to the beach down to the sea edge and if you still haven't sort of aligned your eye level with the the top of the waves and the horizon then that will then mean that the the wave height is shorter than you so you can adjust your surf trip accordingly i was right that's far better than i would have done um it also <laughs> allowed me a sip of tea which i was quite grateful for so thank you very much simon that was a that was a good job no problem. Well, there's lots of stuff in the book that I wanted to cover, but um, time is marching on. Um, so some of the things that uh, we haven't covered, I wanted to talk about Corovrecken, which is a, a massive whirlpool um, up in Scotland. And one of my previous guests had a rather close encounter with that, which on a paddleboard wasn't particularly great and uh, also transit points which is another seagoing method of, of navigation and of course the the other thing is navigation using stars and again you give a very good explanation of how to work out the location of polaris the northern star which has caused great ent entertainment you know it's really great to to figure that out but um Obviously, panel borders are hugely sensitive to weather conditions. And obviously, you've mentioned the wind there. Um, but your book, I believe, which is coming out in April in the UK, deals with weather conditions. It's called The Secret World of Weather. Could you just tell us a little bit about what we can look forward to reading about in that book? Yes, uh, thanks for, for mentioning that, Simon. It's um, whenever we look at a weather forecast, um, the, the meteorologists are leaning on um, uh, centuries of experience um, in, in the professional body of knowledge and some of the most powerful computers in the country uh, and some very clever models to produce a, a sketch of what the weather uh, will be doing. But by and large, they're talking about the weather that's um, uh, 50 to 100 feet above your head. And the reason is that they can't they can't produce something that is relevant to each of us individually, but we are all moving through our own um, our own little microclimates. So it doesn't actually matter if you're you're walking through a city or or if you're in the ocean um, or or if you're in a um, a wild patch. What is going on around you? The things you can observe will change the weather you can experience. They will change uh, the amount of sun, wind, water, 
it, they'll change the cloud. Um, so each of these individual sort of cloud wind um, uh, and other signs is, is very, very local, but you'll never, ever hear it. So the reason I called it the secret world is we, we move through this world. Uh, it's, it's under our noses. Some of these signs we can, we can physically touch, uh, but you won't hear them referred to in a weather forecast ever. So it's um, like all my work, it's, it's clues and signs, but it's, it's, you know, that sudden gust of wind, what does that actually mean? Oh, it's, uh, that's, that, that's a gap wind. Okay. Um, but what about that one? That, that's a different one. Oh, that's, um, that's, uh, that's the cold air coming down off that hill over there. So that, that again, there are hundreds of them. People won't, won't necessarily love every single one of them, but hopefully there'll be enough in there for, for some new relationships to form. That sounds like a, a wonderful book very much something which would be of interest to to our paddleboard community tristan thank you so much really appreciate you you giving up your time i know you've got a a very busy time at the moment Uh, where can we find out more about you uh thanks so much for having me simon and um i've got a website naturalnavigator.com which allows you to kind of explore themes uh it can be uh reading water it can be weather it can be stars it can be uh all sorts of things lots of examples on there I'm on social media, the, the usual usual places, the Natural Navigator on Instagram, Natural Nav on Twitter, and, and I can't remember on Facebook. Uh, I also, I've got a newsletter which you can subscribe to via, via the website where I sort of set puzzles and, and add, add um, sort of clues and, and, and little mysteries to, to solve as well. Uh, lots of information there on, on the books and the online course as well. So uh, yeah, have, a, have an explore at naturalnavigator.com. Thanks. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much, Tristan. Hopefully at some point we could um, lure you out on a paddleboard on the River Aaron. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd make the pros listening to this laugh. I'm, uh, I'm not the, the world's most natural there, natural there, border, but I, I do enjoy it. My, my wife's a lot better, but I, um, I, I don't let her know that. But uh, we, have, we have fun together. Fabulous. Thanks ever so much, Tristan. Take Thanks care. So much, Cheers. Thank you to Tristan and a massive thank you to you for listening to this episode and for listening to the SUPFM podcast. And if you want to get a proper written explanation of how to gauge wave height from the shore or a load of other useful water signs you can use whenever you paddle, then check out Tristan's book, available everywhere, and we've also linked to it in the show notes. This season started way back in early October and because there have been some major changes over the past few months, there's been a lot of juggling going on in the background to keep these episodes coming. So before the launch of the fourth season, we need to do a bit of a housekeeping and updating and of course to add to the safety course. So please follow the SUPFM podcast on Apple or Google podcast or on Spotify like us on Facebook and a big mahalo to everyone for supporting and listening this far. And hopefully as things unwind and get better, we'll see you on the water. And if not, we'll see you back for season four. Take care.